Gospel of John, chapter 18. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, fourth book of the New Testament, and the fourth of the Gospel accounts. Uh, we've been in a regular series of sermons for a little over a year now in the Gospel of John, and we come this morning to chapter 18. And this represents something of a transition in the narrative. The Gospel of John was written to reveal to us the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we might have life in His name. That's the purpose of John's Gospel. In the first 12 chapters, uh, we, we get the first few years of Jesus' life and His public ministry, His interactions with various individuals, uh, men like Nicodemus, women like the woman at the well, and various crowds of people that He speaks to. We see in those 12 chapters a record of various signs and wonders that Jesus performed that testified to who He is. Uh, then you get to John 13, and the narrative slows down immensely. When you get to John 13, we're now in the final week of Jesus' life, and Jesus is not uh, out and about among the crowds, but rather He's uh, shut up to the upper room with that intimate group of His disciples, first the 12 and then the 11 after Judas leaves the room. And in chapters 13 through 17, we have some of the most intimate revelation in all of Scripture from the Lord Jesus to His disciples. And what He's doing is He's preparing His disciples for His imminent death and departure. It's a glorious section of Scripture. Uh, then in chapter 17, you have the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying for His disciples, interceding on their behalf. And now we're in chapter 18, and now we're at... Uh, the, the grand hour of the Lord Jesus that's been anticipated up to this point. Uh, Jesus, in these verses, is going to be betrayed, and He's going to be arrested, and He's going to be forsaken and denied by His disciples. Uh, then we will move into the various trials of the Lord Jesus, first before the Jews, then before Pilate, and then, of course, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection and subsequent appearances of the Lord Jesus. Now we're in, though, the final hours of Jesus' life, and He's approaching the cross. I'd like us to read this morning together in chapter 18 the verses that we'll be expounding, uh, verses 1 through 27 of John 18. Please follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, uh, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, presumably John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus had said these things. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hands saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. As we read the account of John's gospel, and indeed read the other gospel accounts, uh, one question that, that might occur to us, we might approach the gospel before even reading it with this question, it's a question that might occur to us as we read the gospel. It's a, quish, a question we should be ready to answer to others after we've read the gospel, uh, that question is this, why did Jesus come into the world? Uh, why is it that, that Jesus came? And, and if we read the gospel accounts carefully, we'll realize that there are a number of answers uh, we might give to that question that, that could be true. So, so it's, it's appropriate, I think, in answer to that question to say, well, Jesus came to provide us with wonderful teaching and direction and instruction about how we're to live in a manner pleasing to God. Well, that would be one true answer we could give. Jesus certainly did come to uh, bring the words of God. He says that many times in John's Gospel. My words are not my own. They're the words of the Father. And He gives wonderful teaching like the Sermon on the Mount or the teaching that's contained in the high priestly prayer, excuse me, in the upper room discourse. Uh, certainly great and wonderful teaching comes to us from Jesus. And that's one of the things He does when He comes into the world. He brings us teaching from God. Uh, we could say, and it would be true, that Jesus came into the world to refute the errors of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That would certainly be true as well. The gospel accounts take pains to record at many points where Jesus confronts the misunderstandings uh, of the Jews of His day and seeks to highlight the ways in which they misunderstand God's Word in times past and how they, of course, misunderstand Him as well. Uh, we could say also uh, that Jesus came to reveal the Father. This is manifestly true in John's Gospel. One of the foremost themes of John's Gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 
and that He's sent into the world as the unique ambassador and representative of the Father. And one of the things He's doing preeminently is revealing God to man and showing us who the Father is and instructing us in His ways and in His will. Well, there's more answers we could add. He came to fulfill prophecy. He came to inaugurate a kingdom. He came to establish the church. He came to develop sympathy with man. That's something He does as our great high priest. But there's one answer, and all those answers are true, but there's one answer that rises above all the other answers. There's there's one preeminent mission, task, errand that the Lord Jesus has been given from the Father. And that mission, that task that God the Father gave to God the Son is that He would come into the world and that He would die on behalf of sinners so that they might be forgiven and so that they could be saved. That's the essence of what John 3.16 tells us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. The preeminent reason the Lord Jesus came into the world occupied human flesh, was so that He could go to the cross and He could die for the sins of His people. And I think this particular mission, this particular task given to Jesus by the Father is especially prominent in John's gospel. Haven't we seen this, that Jesus has this prevailing awareness that God has given Him a task, God has given Him a mission. There's a great work that he's to accomplish. There's this great hour that's in front of him when some great uh, climax will be achieved. Some great work of redemption will be accomplished. So, so in, in John 4, Jesus is without food. His disciples come to him, and, and what does he say to them? He says, my food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven and to accomplish his work. Like, it's food to me. Uh, to do the very thing that God has sent me into the world to do. I'm here to accomplish the work of my Father. In John 6, Jesus says, uh, uh, my purpose, my will, is not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, and to accomplish His purposes. Uh, Jesus came on a divine errand, and, and, and He is fulfilling a divine mission, a divine task. And so what we should appreciate and see is that in every step of the narrative, Jesus is cognizant that He's working and moving and acting in obedience to a divine plan. And as such, He's in total control of of these events. The narrative is not driven by those who would uh, uh, oppress Jesus and abuse Jesus and arrest Jesus and betray Jesus. The narrative is actually moved by the will of God. And what was the will of God? It's revealed in Isaiah 53 the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Lord, to crush him. Uh, He has put him to grief. The will of God is that Jesus would be betrayed, that he would be arrested, that he would be the victim of a sham trial, and that he would go to the cross, that he would die for the forgiveness of our sins. And, And so what we need to appreciate in this passage as we see Jesus betrayed and arrested and denied, Peter or Jesus is very much in control. He is the one who is moving the ball down the field. He's the one who is advancing the narrative of these events. Don't forget, we didn't spend a lot of time on this when we were in John chapter 13, but it was Jesus himself who commissioned Judas to do his work. 
Do you remember that when Jesus exposes that Judas is the one that's going to betray him? What does he say to Judas? What you're going to do, do quickly. Like, like we're on the clock here. I have an appointment. And, 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 and your betraying of me, Judas, is part of the plan. What you're going to do, do quickly. And as we move on into this chapter now in John 18, we see that Jesus intentionally goes to a secluded and isolated place. One of the reasons I think Jesus does that is because he wants to make sure it's away from the city, that there's no one there to interfere with the arrest that's going to be made. We see that Jesus goes to a place that's familiar to Judas. If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Then it includes this detail. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. One of the commentators noted that perhaps Jesus went to one of the only places where Judas could count on finding him. Like he went exactly where Judas knew he would be. Again, because he has an appointment. He has a plan. And this is all according to plan, to the task, the mission that God has given to him. And you'll notice when Jesus uh, is in the garden, he actually steps out and steps forward and says, who do you seek? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I'm, I'm here. And then the, the crowd sort of falls back, drops back. We don't know precisely why they did. Uh, they don't include that detail in the narrative. But the sense is, if Jesus wanted to overwhelm them with some display of power, he, he probably could do that in this moment. He could at the very least do what he did in John 8 when they picked up stones to stone him and somehow miraculously he eluded their attacks and just sort of made a way through the crowd. But he doesn't try to elude arrest. He has an opportunity to leave and to escape and he, he doesn't do it. And, and then when Peter impulsively, instinctively draws his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, what does Jesus say to him? He says, Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Don't you appreciate, Peter? I'm in total control. This is all part of the plan. This is what God the Father has sent me into the world to do. I came here to die. And I came here to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You better put that sword back in its sheath because your redemption is on the line. I've come to do the work of my Father. His will is my food, and He has called me to go to the cross. Shall I not drink the cup that He has given to me? So as we work through this passage this morning, I just want us to appreciate this is all according to plan, and Jesus is the one driving the narrative, not Judas, not those troops and those officers who came to arrest Him, certainly not Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate. Jesus is in total control. And all these events befall him in keeping with the divine plan that was put in place to accomplish our redemption. Well, this morning, what I want us to see in this passage is the relationship between Peter and Jesus in particular. Uh, this is one of the most well-known uh, events in Christian history, Peter denying the Lord. I would imagine everyone here from the smallest child knows how many times Peter denied the Lord Jesus. I imagine if we went down into the neighborhoods around here and just knocked on the door and asked the question, hey, do you happen to know how many times Peter denied Jesus Christ? Almost everybody's going to get that question right. It's just a very well-known uh, event in Christian history, whether or not you believe the Bible or not. And so as we've come to this moment now where Peter is going to deny the Lord, 
in such an embarrassing and shameful way. I want us to appreciate Peter's actions, but particularly where Peter stands in relation to Jesus in this passage. So that's what we want to see this morning in John 18, verses 1 through 27, the relationship between Peter and Jesus. And there's three headings I want to work with to help organize our time this morning. Number one, Jesus foreshadows his substitutionary death for Peter and the other disciples. First thing we'll see is that Jesus foreshadows his substitutionary death for Peter and the other disciples. Please look at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Here we have a foreshadowing of Jesus' substitutionary death, his interposing himself in the place of these disciples, his substitutionary death for these disciples on the cross. Jesus is giving himself up so that others can go. Now, now the surface level meaning of the passage is plain. Uh, Here they are in the garden. Perhaps there was some threat that the disciples too would be taken into custody. Jesus stands up and says, look, if you have to arrest somebody, arrest me, but let these men go free. There's no reason to to arrest these men. But then John includes this detail. He actually quotes Jesus from the previous chapter in the high priestly prayer. There Jesus said, John 17, verse 12, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. This gives the indication that something greater is envisioned in these words from the Lord Jesus, take me, let these men go. It's not just these disciples avoiding arrest in the garden. It's that Jesus is going to save them to the uttermost. And, and, and this instance of Jesus uh, standing up, inserting himself in the place of these disciples, and substituting himself, saying, take me, let them go free, this is in keeping with a pattern of behavior. This is what Jesus does for his people. He substitutes himself for them. Remember John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And and, and here's this working itself out practically. Here now are these troops, there's danger and harm that can befall these disciples, and Jesus stands up and says, take me, but don't touch them. I'm the one you're after. Don't harm these disciples. Don't harm my elect. Don't harm my people. Make no mistake, here in the garden, Jesus is foreshadowing what is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus substituting himself for us. Jesus in my place. Jesus suffering, Jesus punished, Jesus bearing the wrath of God, Jesus crucified, all in my place. All so that we could be let go, so that we could be free. He says, take me, only let these men go. He says it here in the garden, and he will say it to his father on the cross. Father, take me, but but let my people go. I'm not going to lose any of those whom you have given to me, even if it costs me my own blood. I appear before you now as a substitute for them. What he says in the garden to these 
troops, he will say to his Father on the cross, I stand here in their place. If harm, if evil, if danger, hurt is to befall anyone, let it come on my head. Lord, if you have to crush anyone, crush me. If there's going to be punishment that comes to sin, I want to stand in their place. Take me as a substitute. This is the will of the Lord, and this is the will of Christ. This is in keeping with who He is as our Savior. He interposes Himself and appears for us as a shield from everything that would harm us. And when we hear Him in the garden standing up and saying, take me, let these men go, we should recognize that that's what He says for each one of us. He stands up for us. And he lets us go free so that it could really be true what he prayed to his father. I've not lost anyone whom you have given to me. My elect people will not be touched. No harm will befall my disciples, not here in the garden, not at the cross, not throughout all eternity. No harm will befall them. I stand in their place. And we should appreciate, brothers and sisters, this is what each one of us needs. You need, as a sinner who stands justly under the wrath of God, you so badly need Jesus standing in your place. You need Jesus appearing on your behalf. You need Jesus in the face of all that would come to harm you and hurt you and destroy you and sink your soul lower than hell itself. You need Jesus to stand up and say, no, 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 leave them alone, take me. I'll be the sacrifice. I'll be the substitute. I'll be the one who willingly takes the blow for them. But I don't want to lose any of them. Take me, only let these men go. Children, I want to say something to you at this point. We talk often about uh, the gospel. It's the message we preach. We want to be gospel-centered in our preaching, in our worship, in our Sunday school classes. The gospel is so greatly emphasized here. You know what that word means, right? Gospel means good news. Uh, The angels said it in Luke 2, they said, I bring you glad tidings or good news of great joy. I bring you gospel. And and, and what is the gospel? What is at the heart of the gospel message? This is the big idea. This is what we so badly want you to understand and appreciate. The essence of the good news of the gospel message is this, that Jesus is willing to appear in our place and he dies as a substitute for our sins. You know what a substitute is? Uh, You could think of it if you play sports or something like that. Uh, Let's say you're the quarterback on the team, and and, and now a substitute is coming in. What does a substitute do? Or a sub, sometimes we call them. They come in to take the place of certain position. Uh, Maybe you've been the substitute before, or you've been substituted out of the game. The idea is this. Uh, We, as sinners, stand in danger of hell and being punished for our sins, and suffering the punishment that our sins deserve. But Jesus stands up and says, I'll be the substitute. Let me stand in their place, and if anyone's going to take the punishment, let it be me. That's at the very heart of the gospel itself, that Jesus appears in my place and suffers the punishment that my sins deserve. And his call is this, that for all those who believe on him, to be a sacrifice for sins, a substitute for us. He will save them to the uttermost if we come to Him in repentance and faith. So what we should appreciate here at the very beginning is that Jesus is foreshadowing His substitutionary death. 
His substitutionary death for all the disciples, uh, not just then, but every disciple thereafter, and his substitutionary death for Peter. And Peter becomes the focus. Peter's the one who stands up and draws his sword, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm the one who's going down. I'm the one who's going to be taken into custody. No harm's going to befall these other men. And that will become a profound importance to Peter as this narrative unfolds. So that's the first heading this morning. Now consider with me secondly. It's in Jesus foreshadows his substitutionary death for Peter and the other disciples. Now secondly, Peter fails Jesus miserably. Peter fails Jesus miserably. The significance and seriousness of Peter's failure uh, can be seen in a few prescient details in in the passage. Uh, Jesus fails the Lord miserably in a major way, and there's certain details that are revealed that I think accentuate uh, the uh, shamefulness of Peter's failure. First of all, we see that Peter completely denies any attachment to the Lord Jesus. He's asked quite plainly, are you one of his disciples? He says, I'm not. I don't have a connection to him. I don't follow him. I'm not his disciple. Other gospel accounts will actually uh, make this point even more forcibly. Jesus, or Peter actually went on to say, I never knew the man. I don't even know who you're talking about. I have no connection to him whatsoever. It's not that Peter says, well, yes, I was hanging around Jesus but I sort of, you know, kind of took the meat, spit out the bones. I was more kind of on the outskirts of everything. It's, it's not like Peter says, yeah, I guess in a sense I was one of his disciples, but I wasn't really all that involved. I was more just kind of following the crowd. No, Peter actually totally denies any relationship at all to the Lord Jesus. So I'm not a follower of him. I never knew the man. Total denial. Total detachment from the Lord Jesus. A, a second fact that I think accentuates uh, how significant and seriousness Peter's failure was, is that the, the initial question uh, comes from a humble servant girl uh, working in the courtyard of the high priest. She asks a very innocent question. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? Presumably the answer is yes. And, and Peter, who a moment ago was so brash and so brave and so passionate to draw his sword and cut off the ear of the soldier, now cowers in fear before a servant girl, asking a very simple and humble question. He says, I ain't a disciple. I don't even know the guy. You've got to look for someone else. A third detail that's mentioned, and this is certainly the most significant, is that Jesus repeats the offense, or excuse me, Peter repeats the offense three times. Uh, so, so it's not uh, that um, Peter just had a moment of weakness and he collapsed and really, if we gave him enough time, he'd go back to the girl, hey, you know, I told you before I didn't know Jesus. I actually did know him. Rather, Peter repeats the offense three times. Uh, this, I think, accentuates the fact that Peter, uh, Peter was self-conscious in this. He denied the attachment to Jesus, and then sometime after that, he's asked again, and sometimes after that, he's act, asked again, each time doubling down on the first denial. And in fact, we read in other accounts that he does so the third time with cursing and with swearing. The vehemence of his denials actually grows with time. This wasn't just a moment of weakness where, you know, Peter shot off and said something he shouldn't have said, but rather he, he kept on with his denial, kept on with his betrayal. 
Well, before asking what we could learn from Peter in this passage and what we could learn from his denial and his failure, it's worth asking the question, who was Peter? Uh, If we're going to learn from his example, either positively or negatively, we should know who Peter was. There's a few things we should note about Peter. First of all, he was an ordinary disciple. Just an ordinary disciple. What is emphasized about Peter in the gospel accounts is not how extraordinary he is, but actually how ordinary he is. He's got ups and downs, just like we do. We feel very much connected to Peter in a lot of ways. He has a lot of uh, human moments, shall we say. He's a very earthy, relatable kind of figure. He wasn't an especially weak Christian, uh, nor was he an especially strong Christian. He's not extraordinary. He's in many ways an ordinary disciple. Well, secondly, we should appreciate about Peter that he is also a prominent disciple, a a prominent disciple. Uh, He's so often the one who speaks on behalf of the other men. He stands up and speaks for the group. He's one of those disciples who was allowed into that special circle of intimacy with the Lord. There were a few disciples, for example, who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter was admitted to see that display of Christ's glory. Uh, Moreover, Peter is the one who's singled out as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church, Matthew 16, verse 18. So, So though he was an ordinary disciple, nonetheless, he has a position of prominence among the disciples. And his narrative is emphasized more than any other in these gospel accounts. Thirdly, Peter was a faithful disciple. He was a faithful disciple. Now, sadly for Peter, this event is the big thing we associate with Peter. But nonetheless, he was a faithful disciple who had followed the Lord for some years. He, when the crowds were leaving Jesus in John 6, he's the one who stood up and said, I'm not going to leave you. Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And Peter is commended for his faith at many points in the gospel accounts. And Peter is one among those disciples in John 17 of whom the Lord says, they have kept my word. Peter had a track record of fidelity to the Lord Jesus. He had stood up for Christ, taken risks for Christ, and had followed Christ now for a number of years. And then the fourth thing I would just want us to know about Peter is that he was a passionately committed disciple. Uh, if you're putting together a psychological portrait of Peter, I think passion comes to mind, emotion. Uh, this is a man who speaks up. This is a man uh, who, who goes from pole to pole emotionally. Uh, this is a man who's passionate for the Lord. And we see at many points in his biography, right, many eruptions of this passion. We just saw one in the garden where he's so moved with passion for the Lord. This can't befall the Lord. I'll die for you, Lord. And he takes out his sword and he goes to cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. All right, so, so, so Peter is an ordinary disciple. He's a prominent disciple, faithful disciple. He's a passionately committed disciple. What can we learn from Peter? And particularly from this sad episode in his life. First of all, we learn that ordinary disciples like Peter fail. Ordinary, normal, typical, the usual. Ordinary disciples like Peter fail. Failure is not unusual. Uh, Peter was not just some weak and meager Christian, nor was he a super Christian. Peter was 
an ordinary disciple. And as an ordinary disciple, he failed the Lord miserably. Listen, all ordinary disciples like Peter are capable of great sin and failure. And we need to get away from the idea that that Peter was just some sort of weakling among the batch. Oh, I would never do something like that. That's just Peter, you know. He's, He's just so weak, so meager, he's so frail, so feeble. We need to get away from that idea. Peter is an ordinary disciple. He's very much like us. And we should recognize if Peter could fail, any one of us could fail. Failure is ordinary in the Christian life. Now, I say that, hear what I'm saying, that not to justify failure or not to nurture within us an attitude that says, well, Peter failed, he was fine, I could just go out and be a big failure. That's not a Christian attitude at all. This failure was terrible for Peter. This, this, this failure represented the darkest night of Peter's soul. And this failure had serious ramifications for Peter's life thereafter. We shouldn't feel emboldened by Peter and say, well, I'm, I'm just like Peter. I could just go out and sin and fail. That, that's not why I emphasize this here. But, but the reason I emphasize it at this point is to say, um, we need to think rightly about sin. And we need to recognize that ordinary Christians can fail the Lord. We should not have the sort of attitude when we see Christians fail or sin, even in significant and miserable and shameful ways, well, there must be something just so totally wrong with them, something so backwards with them. Well, if there's anything backwards with them and everything totally wrong with them, it's things that are backwards and totally wrong with us as well. We should look at Peter and say, the same stuff he's made of, I'm made of that stuff as well. The same failure that befell him could befall me also. If Peter can stand down before a servant girl and deny the Lord three times with cursings and swearing, surely I can too. And, 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 and this should inform the way we think about discipleship and about Christianity and about failure. Secondly, we should note that prominent disciples like Peter fail. Prominent disciples like Peter fail. And, and what I mean here is that leadership, status, office, position among Christ's people does not guarantee you a pass when it comes to failure. I say this first for all those who would idolize or put on pedestals those Christians in prominent places or positions. Never forget the most prominent Christians are still prone to failure. The foremost of men can fail. The best of men are men at best. Everyone other than Jesus has feet of clay, and we should not be so surprised and alarmed to see a prominent Christian fail the Lord. Now, I'm not thinking about people like Joshua Harris who totally deny the faith and are apostate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about prominent Christian leaders who in some way sin in a major way and fail the Lord. So often, very sadly, people's faith is totally disrupted by that. I never thought he could do that. I never thought that that she could fail in that way. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. The track record in the Bible is even the most prominent among the Lord's people fail Him so often and in such miserable ways, such shameful ways. Well, Well, we should not be so shocked, but we should be instructed to fear, and we should be instructed to be humble and to bow before the Lord and, and, and ask Him to make us the sort of men and women that would walk in integrity and honor the Lord. And for those brothers and sisters who are prominent among the Lord's people, we should run to them in sympathy and seek to restore them 
seek to forgive them. But I also mention this point as well for those here who either find themselves in positions of prominence among the Lord's people or who aspire to such positions. Uh, whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a ministry leader or have a role in a Christian school or on a board or some sort, or aspire to some sort of position among the Lord's people like that, we should recognize that such positions will not insulate us from sin and failure, but will only raise the stakes. Uh, An office or status among God's people is not some sort of shield of protection for you. Uh, You too need to be humble and to come before the Lord and recognize you're just a man, you're just a woman, you're just an ordinary disciple like Peter. If he could fail, you could fail. And therefore, we should take heed lest we fall also. We should come before the Lord as humble men and women, recognizing that office or status or prominence among God's people, it doesn't insulate us from failure. Well, thirdly, we can learn from Peter that even faithful disciples like Peter fail. Faithful disciples like Peter fail. Peter had kept Jesus' word. He had stood by Jesus. He had a track record of faithfulness. But we see here that a track record of faithfulness doesn't guarantee fidelity in the future. We can't rest on our laurels. Well, I've, I've walked with the Lord for all these years. I've been faithful. I can sort of coast. Peter had a track record of faithfulness. Peter had already accomplished mighty deeds of valor and courage in service to Christ. And yet his worst episode comes after some years of following the Lord. Well, we should recognize that though we may have been following the Lord for decades, it does not mean that we're not prone to failure still. It doesn't mean that we can't fail the Lord in the future. And we should recognize at all times we're in need of God's help and God's grace and God's sustaining power and His Spirit working within us and through us. We must always keep short sin accounts. We must always be ready for the evil day. We must recognize at any time we can fall and therefore we must remain close to Christ, clinging to Him. Even faithful disciples can fail the Lord. Just pause to say that there are a few things that are more sad than seeing a Christian who has had a track record of fidelity fail the Lord in the 11th hour. Uh, Just grow slack. A Christian doesn't finish well. Listen, we run the race to the finish line. We fight the fight of faith until there are no more enemies to fight. And so, brother or sister, I hope that God has granted you a track record of fidelity, but persevere and recognize you're still prone to sin. You're still weak and feeble and frail and in need of the Lord's grace every day. Uh, A final uh, point of application here under this second heading Passionately committed disciples like Peter fail also. Listen, Peter was passionate for the Lord. He took risks for Jesus. He was outspoken for Jesus. He said he was willing to die for Jesus. When Jesus is threatened with arrest, Peter draws his sword in defense of Jesus. Peter was a passionate follower of Jesus. Well, what about all that passion now? Was it all just insincere? No, it was not. And Peter was sincerely passionate for the Lord, but his passion did not keep him from falling. And he was on fire for Christ. He was passionately committed to Christ. 
but that did not keep his foot from falling. And though we may be passionately devoted to the Lord, we too can fall. Doesn't mean that passion was insincere. It just means that it's no shield against failure. Well, moving on from this point now, I want to move to my third and final point. Jesus foreshadows his substitutionary death for Peter and the other disciples. Secondly, uh, Peter fails Jesus miserably. Now, thirdly and finally and gloriously, where Peter fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Peter fails, Jesus succeeds. Isn't it interesting to observe, I wonder if you caught this in, in, in the narrative of John 18, how John sort of staggers the account a little bit. Uh, and that way it's sort of like a good movie where you're, you're cutting in and out of scenes that are going on contemporaneously and it sort of builds up the drama and communicates some, some, some big point, kind of like a meanwhile back at the lodge kind of thing, you know, bounces between scenes. John uses and employs that device here in, in John 18. We go back and forth between the scene that's taking place out in the courtyard with Peter who's warming himself by the fire with, with this young lady and the other disciple and whoever else is there. And, and Peter, who's, or excuse me, Jesus, who's inside, being interrogated by Annas and Caiaphas. And, and we go in between the two. And one of the things I think John is doing there is providing us with a contrast between Peter and Jesus. Uh, these events, I think, are meant to be contrasted. What's happening with Peter in the courtyard What's happening with Jesus uh, in the inner courts with the high priest? Uh, Peter, uh, in his scene, is confronted and questioned, and he denies everything. Jesus is confronted and questioned, and he denies nothing. You see that? But both are being interrogated. Both are in some sort of danger. Peter is interrogated and questioned by a young girl who has no power over him. He denies everything. Jesus is interrogated and questioned with those who can put him on the cross. He doesn't deny a thing. Peter, when facing his accusers, stands down and rejects the cost of following Jesus. Jesus, when facing his accusers, stands up and embraces the cost, going all the way to the cross. So here's what I think we're meant to see in these accounts. Against the backdrop of Peter's failure, we're meant to see Christ's faithfulness. Against the backdrop of Peter's cowardice, we see Christ's courage. Against the backdrop of Peter's sin, we see Christ's grace. Remember, he's doing this all for Peter. He's doing this all for us, standing in Peter's place, standing in our place. And this is so important for Peter because Peter must depend on Christ's faithfulness to compensate for his failures. For Peter, it must be true that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You see this, right? That Peter has to see, has to appreciate, he'll have to get to this point that though I have sinned and though I have failed so miserably, Jesus has succeeded where I've failed. Where I cowered and backed down, Jesus stood up courageously, suffered the wrath of God in my place, went to the cross in my place, and He did for me what I could not do for myself. He has been faithful where I have been a failure, and I need Him to succeed for me or I am hopelessly lost forever. Jesus was faithful unto the end. He was obedient unto the end. John 13 says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them 
to the end. Peter failed and fell short, but bless God, Jesus does not. And that scream forth from the text against the backdrop of Peter's miserable failures. Christ's perfect faithfulness shines more brightly. And what I want us to appreciate is it's his faithfulness on Peter's behalf. Peter is such a failure. He's so weak. He's so frail, just like we are. Peter is so sinful. Peter's failure is so ugly and so embarrassing and so shameful, as are our failures and our sins. And don't forget, though, Jesus is standing up for Peter now. I'm not going to lose any of those who God has given to me. I will not lose any of the Father's elect. He says, I have guarded them, I have kept them in your name, and he will keep them unto the end. No one will snatch them out of the Lord's hands. John doesn't choose to include this detail, uh, but in Luke's account, at least, uh, when Jesus foretells of Peter's denial, he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. Jesus is in perfect control. And Jesus was well aware of Peter's failures when he saved him. He was well aware that Peter was going to have this miserable moment, this episode of intense and embarrassing and shameful failure, but he loved him still with full knowledge that within a few moments, Peter was gonna cower before a servant girl. He stands up and says, take me, let these men go. I'm not gonna let any harm come to Peter. I'm not gonna let anyone hurt my little lamb. No one will touch them, no one will snatch them out of my hands even though they may fail miserably. There was forgiveness for Peter. There was grace for Peter. Where Peter failed, the Lord's grace was more than sufficient to compensate. Well, I hope the lesson is obvious for us. As there was forgiveness for Peter, there will be forgiveness for us. As there was grace for Peter, there will be grace for us. Where we fail, the Lord's grace will be more than sufficient to compensate. And bless God where we have failed, and where we so often fail, the Lord has succeeded. You remember that text? We've referenced it a few times recently in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you wondered, I mean, is there a particular event in the mind of the writer to the Hebrews, or maybe an amalgamation of events. When Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. The implication is we've been tempted and we have sinned. The difference is Jesus was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. I don't know what the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about exactly, but it could be that he's thinking of these events. Jesus in the same exact place as Peter, being accused, standing in harm's way, potentially. Peter fails so terribly. He's tempted, he sins, he crumbles. Peter, or Jesus, stands. He's tempted in the same way, yet without sin. And what does the writer to the Hebrews go on to say as a result of this? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. That is, Jesus has stood where we've stood. And where we have failed, he has succeeded. And that should engender in us a certain sort of confidence to come before the Lord recognizing that he has compensated for all my failures. He's the only sinless one. Where I have failed, where I have been weak, where I have sinned, Jesus has stood the test. And he's done it for me. And therefore I come in confidence recognizing he sympathizes with me. There's grace for me. There's forgiveness for me. In these verses, in John 18, we should see a Savior who stands as a substitute for sinners like Peter and sinners like us. He is the one who says, take me and let these ones go. And he is the one who succeeds where we fail. All that's left to say before closing is to ask, have you trusted this Savior? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful Children, listen to me. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have one who compensates for every last one of your failures? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have one who makes atonement for every last one of your sins? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone who, where we have failed, succeeds for us? Have you trusted this Savior? Who will stand up for you on the last day? Jesus is willing to stand up for all those who will believe on him in repentance and faith. You need him to stand up for you and to say for you, Father, this is one of those for whom I've died. And my blood is sufficient to cover them. I died so that he could be saved, so that she could be saved. And if any harm is to befall them, let it come on me. You need someone to stand as a substitute for you You need Jesus to appear in your place on your behalf. And listen to me, this gospel was written. John, those hundreds, thousands of years ago, wrote this gospel for this purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that he could stand in your place, suffer the punishment your sins deserve, so that you could have eternal life forever. Oh, that each one of us would have a Savior who compensates for all of our failures and atones for all of our sins. Let's pray together.